Hello, everybody, and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. This is a talk that somebody gave me who is an expert on piracy. And her name is Jamie Goodall. And she is a doctor in, I believe, Maryland. Anyway, she gave a very fascinating conversation about uh, a window into piracy. Um, that is, you know, pirates. Not Napster pirates or Somali pirates, but what we think of when we think of pirates or, you know, what we should think of. But anyway, the thing I've been thinking about a lot is the, the basically the social construction around what crime is and basically which crimes we choose to essentially to care about as what we want to call a society. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there for right this second. But it does kind of get to the tip of the iceberg, Dr. Goodall. It does kind of get to the tip of the iceberg because she talks about something called the Oyster Wars, which she'll get into a little bit in this podcast, which is really interesting. And I want to see if I can find somebody else to talk about the Oyster Wars. Because, again, this is something that it gets to, the, you know, the social construction of what crime is and what we think of when we think of crime and which crimes we think should be effectively prosecuted by the state and which ones we don't think should be effectively prosecuted by the state. It's really interesting to... to um, basically to dive in on that from a philosophical and a historical level because, you know, the, the crimes that we care about today weren't always the crimes we cared about, you know, back in the day. And it's really interesting that some of these instances of crime, you know, we've sort of forgotten as a society. And you can get into, did we forget this on purpose? Or was it just sort of a, uh, you know, the way time works kind of thing? This illusion of, you know, this chocolate box or, you know, society or remembered past that didn't really exist and never really existed in the first place. But yet somehow we always seem to want to go back on it, or at least some people do. So that's a something I'm going to look into. Even if I do it myself, I might even have to do it myself because it it's so niche. So I think I'm going to have to do that. But uh, anyway, as always, people, I'm having a great day and I hope you are too. And Hopefully this will be the first of two podcasts I release today. But uh, we'll see about that. Anyway, as always, I'm having a good day and I hope you are too and... Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. This call is now being recorded. Hello. This is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager here with Dr. Jamie Goodall. And today we are going to talk about the history of pirates. So why don't you get us going? Okay. Um, do you want me to just talk about my research? Well, first of all, when we say pirates, we're not talking about, you know, Napster pirates or 
Pirate Bay Pirates or Somali Pirates. We're we're talking about. Yeah. What are so, we talking about exactly? So we're talking about the golden age of pirates, which is about 1650 to 1723. Um, so uh, pirates of the Caribbean um, operating. Uh-huh primarily attacking Spanish shipping, but willing to attack any kind of shipping. Now, I remember in my research when I was in grad school, I remember being struck by how multicultural those pirate ships actually were. Yes. Right. Um, So most pirate ships, because they're motley crews they're sort of made up of whoever was willing to go pirating Um, and the fact that the Caribbean itself was so multicultural it makes a lot of sense that pirate ships were also multicultural and pirate ships also engaged in the transatlantic slave trade so um, sometimes they would have enslaved Africans on board their ships sometimes they would free those enslaved Africans and sort of impress them into service um, sometimes they would free them and allow them to just join as a fellow pirate. So um, lots of different languages being spoken on pirate ships. Um, there's no one way to talk like a pirate. <laughs> what was the language uh, predominantly, or did it did it vary from ship to ship? I think it varied from ship to ship because there there were instances where. Um, merchants came across pirate ships and French was the language spoken and there might be one person on there who spoke English. But I think we tend to think that most pirate ships probably had a predominant language of English just because that's when we captured pirates, a lot of them were Englishmen. So I would say if there was a predominant language, it would have been English, but I think that just varies from ship to ship. Okay, now when you're talking about, you said we. Now, who 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 is we exactly? Um, just any pirate scholar. Uh, I think Marcus Redeker wrote quite a bit about multicultural crews and what that meant. Um, okay. Or just anyone who studies or is interested in pirates. Okay, so when the pirates uh, encountered, say, a navy. Uh, mm-hmm. either an American Navy or a colonial situation or a European or a presumably uh, Arabian or whatever. When a pirate vessel uh, encountered a Navy, the predominant uh, language spoken on those ships was English or not? Um, but, I mean, again, I think it varies from ship to ship, but by and large, you would have enough people on board the ship speaking English that they would be able to to negotiate or to talk to the the naval crew that uh, yeah. is dealing with them. How did pirates get, I mean, obviously, I mean, well, not obviously, but I know there's Vikings. So mm-hmm. how are Vikings different from pirates? Let's, let's start there well I think in terms of difference it's probably a lot in in their motivation and their activities so Vikings were known to attack other ships but 
by and large, they were exploratory vessels and they were out exploring the world. Um, so I think just a little bit different motivation. They weren't set on attacking other ships. It, if they did, it was by happenstance. Okay. And it's, it's my understanding, not, again, it's my understanding that piracy was to some degree or other sanctioned by the English crown. Mm-hmm. To go against the, uh, was it both the Portuguese and the Spanish or just the Spanish? Um, well, really they sort of sanctioned them depending on what was going on at the time, depending on what war was happening. Uh, they sort of sanctioned them whether fully or sort of implicitly, uh, to attack Spanish, Portuguese, French, or Dutch. So really any of the major European powers um, because we have, of course, the Anglo-Spanish Wars, which are the most prominent, but then there's also the Anglo-French uh, Wars, the Anglo-Dutch Wars. So they're really, at least for a time period, they are somewhat sanctioning these vessels. Mostly it's implicitly by saying, well, giving them a slap on the wrist and say, don't do that again. But, you know, it's okay. That's- Interesting that it wasn't actually formalized most of the time. Yeah, most of the time it was not, um, because if it was formalized, then they would be granted a letter of mark and they would become privateers. So in that way, they wouldn't be prosecuted as pirates by the English. Um, Although, according to the Spanish, of course, they didn't recognize a letter of mark, a pirate was a pirate whether they called themselves the privateer or not. Mm-hmm. So um, let me ask you this. Um, so in 16, you said 1625? Around 1625, 1650, yeah. Okay. So 1625, 1620, 1650, uh, what was the condition that that started what you might call privateering or piracy or or what have you? Like, was it a policy shift or or what? Well, I mean, so piracy and privateering existed for centuries. Um, I think what happened in the 1650s is that uh, there was a lot more conflict um, territorially happening between the European powers and the, their colonial holdings. And so there was a lot more warfare happening in such a short amount of time that it allowed piracy to sort of flourish. And once it flourished, it was difficult to suppress it. Uh, so it was, was it more a case of once you've opened the can of worms or once you've opened Pandora's box, it's harder to close it? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Now, in your research, was there any sense that there was a moment where the crown or I guess people at the behest of the crown might have thought, you know, what did we start? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's definitely been, uh, documentation of, of officials who have written back and forth to each other, sort of like lamenting that pirates have sort of taken control, um, and that their colonial governors in the Caribbean are sort of allowing those pirates to um, harbor in their 
in their areas. And so, yeah, they definitely would talk about how much they had sort of, uh, sort of not aware of how bad it was going to get. Wow. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that just echoes through the time that, mm-hmm. that sort of sense just echoes down time with all kinds of decisions that all kinds of governments have made. <laughs> um, I guess like, um, so this started, let me see, 1625, that would have started with Elizabeth the first, right? Or um, was that okay. her father? Um, so I think by the 1600s we're at James and Charles and Ah, uh, yes. James and Charles and uh Charles again. Um so did was there any sense that the did the pirates attack the British Navy? I mean, were there any, any encounters like that? Or Um not not really, mostly because pirate vessels tended to be much smaller than other vessels. They needed to be faster and more maneuverable. Um they didn't necessarily need to hold a ton of cargo um, because what they're stealing, um, they're only stealing what they can get. So it was not wise of them to attack a naval vessel, which was so heavily armed and uh, much larger. Uh, so if they came across the naval vessel, they typically tried to outrun them. Huh. So, I mean, you're, that leads me to think, well, possibly you might have uh what what we today would call uh asymmetrical warfare or like mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying like where the the pirate ship might actually be engaged in or accidentally engaged in battle with say a, a British or English ship, even though ostensibly England is okay with piracy right <laughs> wow, so do you want to go dive into your research a little bit or Sure. Um, So I have a couple different areas of research. I researched um, the impact of piracy on consumer culture in the Caribbean, and I've also done research on pirates of the Chesapeake Bay. You were talking to me about the, what's the word, Oyster War? Did I get that right? Yeah. How... The, explain that. Talk about that a minute. That, that was fascinating. Yeah. So the Oyster Wars in the uh, 1880s, um, Maryland and Virginia's governments noticed that there was a lot of competition happening because New England fishermen were coming down and fishing the oysters of the Chesapeake Bay because they had sort of destroyed their oyster beds in New England. And this was leading to an overabundance of competition, and it was destroying the oyster beds of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so they instituted a series of laws which prevented New Englanders from coming to fish those oysters and um, left it to state residents only. Um, so those New England fishermen who violated these laws became known as oyster pirates. Um, there's also two different types of oyster fishing. There's tonging. And there's dredging. So tonging is when you have just a couple of people on a boat with these long tongs picking oysters one at a time, 
Um, it's not very disruptive to the oyster bed, and it's the preferred method because it doesn't disrupt the bed. But dredging is where you come in, and with a device, you literally scrape the oyster bed and gather as many oysters as you can. And, of course, that's the more economical, but it destroys the oyster bed. So anybody who was caught dredging when it had become outlawed also became known as an oyster pirate. Um, the oyster wars, um, primarily the first two oyster wars were between Virginia's Governor Cameron and the oyster fishermen. Uh, he decided that he was tired of people violating his laws, and he decided he was going to go out himself on board this ship with uh, some, some sailors and newspaper individuals and go and catch these oyster pirates. And so that's the start of the oyster wars in uh, the 1880s. Wow. And you said that went from 1880 to 1880s to about the 1950s. Was that right? Yeah. The last, um, the last incident was 1959. Jesus. Now, when were the, when were the, um, I guess the, the, the thick of it, when was the thick of it or the predominant number of oyster war encounters or? I would say between the 1880s and the 1920s is probably the the height of oyster pirating. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, like, doing research. Um, what you're making me think of now is doing research on uh, Jesse James. I would learn about the Pinkertons. That's how mm -hmm. I learned about the Pinkertons. And, I mean, our notion of what you want to call federal law enforcement not our notion, but the notion of federal law enforcement for a long time in this country was, was, um, most people today would not be, would be shocked. Right. <laughs> the notion of federal law enforcement was, so I would imagine, like, the theory being that if, if that's not valuable, if the oysters themselves aren't valuable or you can't afford to pay the Pinkertons to protect your oysters, I mean, was law enforcement, was this law enforcement involved or was it just individual fishermen? So, at least in Maryland, they had the Oyster Navy, which was the precursor to the Department of Natural Resources Police. Wow. And they were, their sole purpose was to prevent oyster pirating. And who, who paid them? Was this federal or state? Or? I believe this was state. Huh. That's and of course then you get into I mean immediately I'm thinking about what was their notion of Maryland's territorial waters. Right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I, I mean, but wow, that, that could go sideways in a hurry. Oh yeah, for sure. Were there any were there any um instances of that where they might have strayed in the in the Delaware or um, I'm sure there were, um, but there's not really many recorded instances. You know, I, I had a history professor once that said, history is not omniscient. And so there's just a lot that we just don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would imagine you'd go out of your way not to write that stuff down. <laughs> right. I would imagine. <laughs> uh, so how did, okay. How did the oyster wars 
or did the oyster wars lead to more uh uniform laws about resources and that kind of thing first off yeah so the the first laws were really designed to prevent the new englanders from coming into maryland and virginia waters but over time the laws increased to uh like i said tonguing versus dredging and also trying to prevent um excessive oyster harvesting which was uh destroying the natural reproduction of the oysters wow it's just amazing it's just really amazing how recent our modern notion of all you know i don't know like it it's just amazing how recent our modern notion of federal laws and whatever else is mm-hmm. right like i don't know um talk about do you want to talk about the piracy's effect on the commercial culture sure um so in my doctoral dissertation which was about consumer culture i had a couple different chapters one was about tavern life um one was about shipwrecking and one was about the transatlantic trade and enslaved peoples and so really what's happening is that pirates by virtue of taking and stealing these goods um that were destined for a particular port and taking them to other ports that maybe weren't expecting them or weren't um you know weren't the targets of those types of goods that pirates helped to shift consumer culture throughout the Caribbean and really enabled people to be able to buy luxury goods that they may not otherwise have been able to afford because, of course, the pirates are willing to let the the objects go for a much cheaper price. They just want to fence the loot and get the money. So right. uh, in, in that way, they're sort of shaping the, the choices that people would make in terms of what they would buy and how they would use it. Right. And there were no, I mean, were there laws about possession of stolen goods? I mean, like, you know, like, nowadays. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm sure there were, but unfortunately it was very difficult to tell what was a stolen good in a lot of cases, um, just because there were so many ships coming in and out of ports at a time that there were so many goods and and stuff being brought into these ports that uh it could be difficult to to tell what was stolen and what was legitimate was there any sense let me ask you, was there any sense that you got like the percentage of a area's gdp or whatever like what percentage of their economy might have been tied up in piracy um i don't have like I didn't calculate exact percentages, but some islands, of course, had greater interaction with pirates than others. Uh, the Bahamas, for example, I would say a good, like, at least 50% of their GDP, their uh, income was coming from pirates, just because that was, like, the pirate hotspot. You um, said 5-0%, 50%. Yeah. Yeah, I would say upwards of Wow. Um, just because that's where pirates were known to hang out, it was, uh, 
considered a hotbed of piracy at the time. Um, NASA, particularly in the Bahamas, was known to be home to pirates, so. Gee. And that's like, I mean, the other thing that I, it just occurred to me was if you had a lot of, um, uh, let's just call them mixed race people. There were probably a lot of mixed race people that were basically frozen out of the legitimate economy. Mm-hmm. You know, that they might be free or whatever, but they're frozen out of, so piracy might well be what they could do. Right. So, I mean, wow. Yeah. Do you, I mean, it's okay if you don't. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but <laughs> there was a, um, I remember a, I, I was on vacation in New England and I was in this museum and I ran across this exhibit of, um, where it talked about a huge percentage of, up until like modern day almost, a huge percentage of African American people in this part of New England were actually the descendants of pirates. And it showed this map of like, here's the Bahamas, and if you go straight up, like you get to Maine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you know about that? I mean, that's... I do not. Um like I said, I know pirates were very heavily invested in the transatlantic trade of enslaved peoples, but I don't have much evidence for uh, that aspect. Did pirate did did pirates was there any evidence that they would seek out enslaved peoples to put in their crew or, or what whatever? Um, I think it was if they were seeking out a slave trading ship, it was to capture those enslaved peoples and turn around and, you and know, sell resell them. them. Yeah, so it was a very inhumane aspect of piracy right. Um, right. of the many. <laughs> we don't want to, I mean, I, I really don't want to make it sound like these guys were, you know, nice people because, I mean, I distinctly remember reading books in college that almost like with the Mongols, how the Mongols are being reassessed to the point where you just think they're, you know, these mm-hmm. wonderful ambassadors of multiculturalism, <laughs> <laughs> which is not true. But, you know, the I, I noticed that when I was in school, that the pirate, the, the literacy on, the literature on pirates had shifted to where pirates were almost, you know, these ambassadors of multiculturalism, which they obviously weren't. Yeah, um, I mean, so some parts, like I said before, they did free some enslaved peoples and allow them to join their crew, um, but more often than not, they were freeing them to impress them into service on board the pirate ship. Um, I mean, we know, for example, like Blackbeard had uh, a formerly enslaved African as one of his, like, first mates almost. But beyond that, for the most part, um yeah, they're just participating in the the trade as much as any merchant would. Was there is there an individual pirate ship or pirate that just sticks out in your mind as like what this person did was unusual or just something that stuck with you? Um I would say probably the story of Blackbeard and um, his capture of some 
well-to-do people from Charleston, South Carolina. Um, so by this point, Blackbeard and his crew, um, his crew is very sick, um, and he needs medication. And so he's off the coast of South Carolina when he sees this boat, um, which he believes to be full of um, important people, um, just by nature of the type of boat that it was. So he captures it and captures um, about a dozen important people from Charleston, South Carolina, and he writes to the governor, um, I'm holding these people for ransom. I'll kill them if you don't send me medication. And so, of course, the governor, knowing Blackbeard's reputation, wants to take no chances whatsoever, so he sends the, the medication immediately. Um, Blackbeard keeps his word, does not kill them, um, but he's not about to lose his reputation, so he sends the gentlemen back to shore, rowing themselves naked. Well, I mean, so much of piracy, I guess, is psychological warfare, really. I mean... Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's so interesting. It's really interesting when you when you dig into it. Um, mm-hmm. Now, here's a question that I'm going to... I opened up with a similar question. Um, so my family, my, my father's people are descended from, from Viking stock. So Mm -hmm. I've always kind of had this, not affinity for Vikings, but I've always been interested in them. Um, so why didn't pirates become like an ethnic group almost? Um, yeah, it's tough to say. Was it because they didn't involve women? Yeah, I mean, women weren't allowed on board ships with the exception, of course, of the rare uh, Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed. Um, And women weren't really necessarily a part of their plans, except for when they got back to shore. Um, Yeah. I think part of it, too, is that pirates actually had, many pirates actually had families and they were only pirating once or twice to get enough money to support their families. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Like they were, they so they were, they had families already, and that's interesting. yeah. And most pirates aren't pirating for very long. They're doing one, maybe two voyages, and then retiring because it was such a dangerous lifestyle. Um, and so they're just trying to earn enough money for their families or for their wives, and then they would retire to some other line of work. Did these pirate ships have a? I mean, was there wasn't like an uh, an understood share? Was there or was there? Um, at least according to Marcus Redeker and other pirate scholars, uh, if you look at the existing pirate codes there were specific shares for the crew and that um, for the most part it was equal, but then some individuals, sometimes the captain uh, or the quartermaster would get a higher share depending um, on the ship. But by and large, there was a breakdown at least of who was going to get how much. Yeah. And it's fascinating that some of these modern scholars have, 
have taken to to seeing the um I guess the lack of rank or the I guess the flat you know hierarchy as though it was some sort of communal utopia and of yeah. course that's that's not true I mean yeah I mean we see all the time with mutinies and and those that, those sorts of events that it wasn't all hunky dory happy <laughs> on those ships, um, even though it was based on a more egalitarian sort of system, um, people get greedy. So, right. Was there any? Did you come across any um, any records of how somebody would have dealt with that greed? Some pirate captain. Um. I think it was Captain Kidd. I might be mistaken. But um, one of his sailors threatened mutiny, um, and he hit him in the head with a bucket and killed him. Captain so, Kidd killed the killed the sailor. Yes. The threat mutiny. Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. So is there anything... You'd like to add or anything at all? Um, no, I think we covered quite a bit. Okay, now I ask all my guests this. Is there anything you'd want, like to tell the Internet? Um, go buy my book. <laughs> what is your book? And I'll I'll put that in the link in my description. Yeah, it's called Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay. From the Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. And you can get it on Amazon. You can buy it direct from the History Press, Arcadia Publishing. Or you can go to IndieBound and search for a, a local indie store that has it uh, and can ship it to you. Okay. And I guess during COVID, you know, going to a bookstore might not be right. <laughs> good, but... All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, and um, have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.